I might mention that we are um, we added in the spring a service at nine o'clock that's a little bit more conversational. We cover the same material that we cover in this service, but it, there's opportunities to question and for interaction to get to know one another a little bit. We have a good group. So that's happening. That continues to happen through the summer. And so if that's something that's uh, at nine o'clock in addition to the service at 1035, um, we're talking about the uncontrollable sin. And we've established a couple of principles that we've been revisiting week by week because with respect to coveting, it's a very unique sin. We call it the uncontrollable sin. A couple things, let's see. I'm having a little trouble, let me see. Here we go. That's <laughs> um, Respect to coveting. Um, coveting counts. It's Jesus who made coveting count again. He said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And what this says relative to obeying God's commands, that his commands need to be obeyed, not just at the level of behavior, but at the level of thought. I imagine the people at the time were struck by this. It's one thing to control what you do. It's another thing to control what you think. Jesus applied it as well. Yeah, here we go. Um, here we go. You heard that it was said, do not commit murder, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, we've seen this from week to week, but it's something that we re it bears repeating. Covenant is covenant counts, and with respect to thoughts and desires, not just actions. If we're going to obey the Ten Commandments, we have to control not just what we do, but what we desire and what we think. It's a very, very long, it's really impossible. That's why we call it the uncontrollable sin. It's Paul that ends up talking about the uncontrollable nature of sin. We've read this from week to week, but this is one of those passages that if you really look at it and think about what it says, it's really pretty astonishing. And if you get what it's saying, it will help you be more responsive to God. Look what it says. Uh, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. He's saying that sin the law identifies sin. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said don't covet, but he's not just saying it identifies it. It's saying it produces it. Look what it says. Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire for apart from law, sin is dead. It's an uncontrollable sin. How do we control it? And that's what we've been looking at. Um, five things. Be real. Be still. Speak freely. 
Those are the critical first three. We'll talk about them a little bit at the end. Be real. Be honest about what you think and feel. Look at yourself. Admit the things that you might not want to admit about yourself. Be real. Be still. And don't try to fix them. Right. Now, just listen to what God says. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations and on the earth, and I will never leave you and forsake you. I will never cast you adrift or leave you behind. It's important to be real and then be still, because God says be still in light of the fact that we are thinking things we don't want to think and doing things we don't want to do. God just doesn't say be still when you're doing it well and saying it right. He says, be still when you're not doing it well and saying it right. And he says that I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, then speak freely. And this is ultimately what God wants. I've mentioned this, but I think it bears repeating. In the first year in the wilderness, uh, when there was no water, what God said to Moses is, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. And that's what Moses did. I'm sorry, strike the rock. This is the first time. In the first year, he said, strike the rock. And Moses struck the rock and it bring forth water. And then in the 39th year, after they wandered around and hopefully they had learned a lesson, God told Moses to speak to the rock. And he didn't speak to it, he struck it. It's challenging for us to learn to speak to God, but that's what the third is. It's speak freely with him. Learn to be real about what's happening, to be still, and hear God say, I'm with you, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and then speak to him about the things you need today. Doing those three leads to the fourth and the fifth, being able to wait perseveringly and respond gently. It's helpful sometimes when you're taking a trip to, to have the end in view from the beginning. With respect to being a Christian, what's the end? And the end is becoming Christ-like. That's God conforms us to the image of his son. What does that mean? I mean, what does becoming Christ-like mean? There's a verse. Let's see what it says. Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the father, son, except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here, this is the only place I'm aware of where Jesus says, I am, and answers it with adjectives, where he tells us what he is like. He tells us, the things that characterize him. He talks about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am this and that. But these are analogies. They are not adjectives. What he says here, he's telling us what he's like. The only place I'm aware of that he does that. Very, very unique verse. And he tells us what he's like inside. And what he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. If we're to be Christ-like, I think this describes what it means. What does it mean? What does God want to produce in us? Gentleness and humility. Gentleness. Um, to be gentle is a word at the time in, in 
Greek, gentle was a word that you used to describe medicine. Like say you got an itch or a rash and you put some cortisone cream or some kind of cream on it and oh that boy that feels good that's gentle that's a like a gentle medicine not just a gentle medicine or like a domesticated animal think about a family pet family dog that if somebody knocks at the door and it's an intruder they're appropriately aggressive but with respect to children and family they're very docile that's the image of gentle a soothing medicine and a family pet um, humility is a word that describes someone who doesn't forward their own agenda so actually, it, humility, we've talked about this a number of times, but it, it, I think it bears repeating. When we think of humility, we think of somebody self-deprecating. Oh, it was nothing. Nah, don't, nah, come on. You know, it wasn't me. And, and that's not really what humility meant in the first century, not this word. Humility was the experience of a slave. Slaves in the first century had no, they had no, they weren't regular. They weren't recognized by the government. They had no ability to complain about something to the government because if you were a slave and you come to me as the governor and I say, you're a slave, aren't you? Get out of here. I don't need to listen to what you say. You have no bearing in the court. They had no bearing. And that's what a slave was somebody humble. They had to learn that they could not use what they had to get what they want. That's what humility is. What somebody learns when they repeatedly have been unable to use what they have to get what they want. And there's a sense to which a humble person has learned not to be pushy. And that's how Jesus described himself. Gentle, a soothing medicine, a trained pet, humble. Somebody who learns not to push their own agenda, but to, to do what somebody else tells them to to say, let's flesh this out. Let's try to put some meat on the bones. To be Christ-like is to be gentle, is to respond gently. Um, James is the one who ends up describing in James is Jesus' half-brother. That's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility. That word humility? It's the word gentleness, and it, and it may be more accurately translated gentleness. To be deeds done in the gentleness, the original language, that comes from wisdom. Um, so, the who is wise and understanding among you, from a spiritual perspective, somebody who is gentle, a soothing ointment or a trained pet. When we are respond, when we are wise, we respond gently. What does wisdom look like? You know, what does wisdom look like in operation? How would you know it if you saw it? You have to be careful because there's two kinds of wisdom. Look what it says. There's a wisdom from above. James says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder 
and every evil practice. There's wisdom from below. And there's two words we have to understand. Envy is bitter envy. It's a harsh, sharp desire. It's pointed. It's kind of aggressive talk. That's what uh, envy is. And selfish ambition is important to understand. It's a factioning, campaigning spirit. The thing that's interesting about this is that it says that if you trace disorder and every evil thing, and if you trace them down to their root, you'll find these two things. You'll find a strong agenda. Somebody who is going, no, I'm not going to shut up. We really need to hear this. That and an, a factioning, campaigning spirit. What that means, it's somebody who tries to attract adherence to themselves. They say this because I want you to come over to my side and I want you to leave their side. That's what selfish ambition is. It's what happens in politics. James in describing it, it's not happening in the government. Well, it's happening in the government, but that's not his issue. His issue is that it was happening in the church. And at that time, there were house churches. Let's say you are one house church and you're another house church. And what was happening is that people were being very strong about, well, if you were wise, you'd believe this. And you know what? And so you guys in this house church look at their house church and their house church is being led by Randy. And let's say, and this one is being led by Janice. Okay, but you couldn't leave. Anyway, now let's say that's the way. You're leading this house church. And, and so Janice, my, my, what you guys are saying is, oh, Randy doesn't know what he's talking about. You guys need to come over to our house church. You know what I mean? Janice knows what she's talking about. And then, and then this group says, oh, Janice doesn't know anything. You know, you guys need to come over. And that's what's happening. So that's envy and selfish ambition. And what James says, from a spiritual perspective, you trace disorder and evil, and that's where it comes from. This kind of politicizing of religion. We need to do this, and you've got to come over to our side, and no, we're not, and that, that's where it comes from, which is interesting. That's not gentle. That's the wisdom from below. It's interesting what we see, the direction of it ends up creating, well, wisdom from below. If wisdom comes from below, what is it going to do with me? It's going to move me up above you. And that's the sense. And where wisdom from above, how might you say that? How might you, what is, how does that evidence itself? It moves you to stoop. This is the attitude of a servant, a humble. This is low. It's not up and proud. It's low and humble. Directionally, pride is up. That's what it means. Hubris, high. And humility is low. It stoops to serve. Um, he goes on and talks about... Okay... There we go. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace 
raise a harvest of righteousness. The wisdom that comes from above is identified or characterized by by these things. Um, it says peace-loving. That's fairly straightforward. Peaceable, peacemaking. Somebody who is functioning wisely will not start quarrels, but will help to resolve them. Peacemaking is somebody who is able to understand things in such a way as to bring a coming together. Wisdom from below separates. Wisdom from above unites. Um, Peace-loving. Considerate, it's a thoughtful attitude in legal relationships, prepared to mitigate the rigors of justice. Somebody who is considerate has the ability to not stamp their feet and stand for what they want. They have the ability to mitigate justice. Hey, let's talk about this. Let's try to figure out where we're coming from here. Um, Submissive is that's actually submissive is not a good translation for this word it's it's actually somebody who can find common ground somebody easily persuaded congenial open to reason you know you've know people that no matter what you say they're going to jump on the other side of the argument you know white oh no black you know black oh no white and that's the way it is that is the opposite of this word this word it means to be able to find common ground somebody who is open to reason that you can find them a reasonable person they don't stamp their foot they they can talk and they can listen um full of mercy is compassionate impartial and sincere are important words to be impartial literally means to not be judgmental that's what it literally means it's not judgmental and sincere is not hypocritical jesus identified two things that in his view were spiritually cancerous and needed to be clipped judgment and hypocrisy it's interesting that both of those words they come from the root word in Greek, which is judgment. Here's how it works. If I believe judgment comes down from God and he's judging me, it leads me to do two things. If I feel judged and there are things in me that I don't want you to see, I will push those things down. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing fine. That's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is judgment that is pushed down. It comes from the same root word for judgment, but it has the added word of under, under judgment. That's what hypocrisy is. It's I feel judged, there's something in me, and I'm going to push it down so that you can't see it. The other one is not under judgment, but through judgment. And that's what um, what judgment that is expressed outwardly. You know, you're wrong. And both of those words come from the experience of being judged. And we turn it internally and we become hypocrites. Or we turn it outwards and we become judges. And if we wanted to reduce our judgment of others 
or our judgment of ourself. You know what the easiest thing to do would be? To understand you're not getting judged this way. And little by little understand God's not judging you. And if you let that sit in your brain for years, 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 year after year after year after year, you'll find that you'll start to apply it to yourself. God doesn't judge me. Maybe I need to stop judging me. And when we do that, what we'll find is hypocrisy starts to become less. Judgment becomes less. The reason why we judge others and judge ourselves is we feel judged. Um, that's why it's so important to think about God's commitments. Um, so the wisdom from above moves us down to serve the wisdom from below. But what about absolute truth? I mean, there's things to stand for, are there not? There's truths that we need to speak about. And so how do we do that? And James helps us. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. James was pretty direct. <laughs> um, and then he goes on to say, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. That's a really strong statement. With, with respect to responding gently, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. They lead to quarreling. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. We stand for something, but we try to avoid quarrels. Let's, let's, let's dig in. What do we, how do we do this? Um, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Okay, what is he supposed to do? He must be kind to everyone. Able to teach. Not resentful. The Lord's servant has to learn what he needs to know, is kind, not resentful. Um, those who oppose him, he must, as our word, gently instruct. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. God's part. What's God's part here? What does God have to do? We can't make this happen. God's going to make it happen. It talks about God will grant them repentance. Repentance. Repentance is what allows a person to, to move from something to another. Repentance is a change in view. It's, it describes what happens to the prodigal son. And he is so against his father, and he just, and so he ends up going to a distant country. He's eating pig slop, and then it hits him. And he comes to his senses, and he has a change in thinking that allows him to go back. That is the, that's what repentance looks like. It's the ability to see clearly enough to know the path that you need to take. God does that. He allows somebody to have a moment of clarity. So here's the question. Well, it says he, God grants repentance, and repentance allows somebody to know the truth, to escape what's real, and to escape the trap. Somebody who's been granted repentance is able to know the truth, to see what's real, and to escape the trap. 
God's got to do that. We can't do that. Okay, what's our part? And it goes on, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. You know, a quarrel is dispute or strive. It's an argument. It's yelling. It's being aggressive. It's trying to shout over somebody. And apparently, if it's going to result in God granting repentance, the servant has to moderate things a little bit. Apparently, that's what it says. Um, Be kind to everyone, friendly, good-natured, easy to talk to, able to teach, skilled. person who God's going to use has to think about what's right and think about how to communicate it. Um, Not resentful. That's the tough one. Tolerant. Bearing difficulties without resentment. That's a tough one. Must gently instruct, gently correct, and give guidance to. Um, This is the part of the servant. God's part is to grant repentance. The servant's part in this collaboration is to um, not quarrel, be kind to everyone, to be able to teach, not resentful, gently instructing. Um, That's what we are to do. Here's the question. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we get to a place where we can be more gentle? When we talked about it earlier in the early thing, we described gentleness requires us to be able to pause. Reactivity is not usually gentle. Would you agree with me? A hair trigger reaction is usually not gentle. Gentle is something that comes on the far side of a pause. If you think about it, the ability to be sti- be real, be still, and speak freely, it's, it's kind of like depressing the clutch on a car, if you think about it. When you depress the clutch on a car, it you're not, the drivetrain is not attached then, and it allows you to shift gears. It allows you to downshift or, or shift into a higher gear. To be real, be still, and speak freely, it's really learning to depress a spiritual, emotional clutch so that we don't react, but we think about things before we respond. Um, so how do we learn this? How do we learn to depress the clutch? by doing five things. Be real. We think not about them, but we think of what I am feeling and thinking. We don't just focus on them, I think about me. When we are in a quarrel, we're usually thinking about what this other person, and what he would want us, I guess what gentleness will mean, is that I think not just of them, but of me. Where am I? What am I thinking? What's happening inside me? I am really frustrated. I am really angry. Be real about that. Be real about it. Here's the tricky thing. Be still. Before you say, i got to stop this, or I've got to do this, or I've got to stop. Stop. Be real. But then be still. What God says be still. Don't fix it yet. But he would have us to think about, and he would tell us, I am God. I am going to win in the end. Things are not 
up for grabs here. My initiative is going to be forwarded in the end. I get to win this. And what he wants us to do is to hear that. And he says, not only am I great, what he says to each one of us, and by the way, I will never cast you adrift. This person is saying something that makes you feel like you're on the other side. I will never untie you. I will never cast you adrift or leave you behind, ever. Be real, be still, and then speak freely. Learn to, you know, God, I get so frustrated when people bring this agenda and they try to trap me in it. It just, would you give me the ability to be able to, whatever it is, I want the right things to be more, but speak freely with them. And what you find, be real, be still, speak freely, allows us little by little to wait perseveringly and respond gently. The next three weeks, maybe two or three weeks, we're going to talk about practicing this. Here's the deal with something like this. If you wait for a crisis to try to do these things, they won't work. It's something that we have to practice in non-crisis times. And that's what we're going to talk about. Practice makes perfect. Let's stand for closing prayer. <clears throat> so we, we hear the what. You tell us that to be Christ-like is to be gentle and humble in heart. And uh, gentleness means that we don't drown in blaming ourselves. And it means that we don't drown in blaming others. It means that we acknowledge what we think and feel, and we depress a clutch enough to be able to be still. After touching what we think and feel, we, we look at you, and we identify the fact that Evil is not going to win. Your purposes are going to be accomplished in the end. And they're not only great, they're good. You never leak, you never cast a drift, leave us behind. And then you want us to speak freely with you. If we do that, we learn to do that, practice doing that, do it little by little, better and better. We'll find ourselves naturally waiting perseveringly and responding gently. Because the first three develop the ability to do the last two. I pray that we would continue to learn how to uh, control the uncontrollable sin by doing these five things. In Jesus' name, amen.